Beloved, the Puritan John Bunyan wrote the very well-known, the very widely read Pilgrim's Progress. As I understand it, it's the most read book in English after the Bible. His second most widely read novel, as I understand it, is, was written in 1682 called The Holy War. And the subtitle was The Holy War Made by King Shaddai Against Diabolus to Regain the Town of Mansoul. Now, in this novel, Bunyan uses a lot of military imagery. And it's interesting because in the Bible, God also uses much military imagery, even describing himself both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. For example, in Exodus 15, verse 3, Moses tells us, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Yahweh is a warrior. Yahweh is his name. Or Christ, Jesus, said, as recorded by Matthew, in Matthew 10, verse 34, Don't think I came to bring peace on the earth. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. So there is, again, much military imagery, even in Scripture. Or, as we read from the prophet Haggai earlier in our public reading of Scripture, we saw there as well God using military imagery to describe himself as a God of war. Turn back, if you would, for a moment to the prophet Haggai. I want to expand on this just a little bit before we come to the text we have for us here this morning. The book of Haggai is a very fascinating book. Haggai is the second shortest book after Obadiah in the Old Testament. Uh, Haggai is, along with Zechariah and Malachi, three of the post-exilic prophets, three of the so-called minor prophets that wrote after Israel's return from the Babylonian captivity. Haggai prophesied for some four months in the year 520 B.C. in the nation of Israel. And he actually was the first of those three post-exilic prophets to prophesy after the exile. His contemporary Zechariah came some two months or started some two months after he did. And when we look at Haggai, we know in these two chapters there are four words from God marked by the words the word of the Lord came. For example, look at chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of Darius the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now, this first word of the four words that we see in chapter 1 is a word of rebuke from the Lord. And it is for the entire nation, but it is specifically addressed to the leaders. It is a word of rebuke because they have not finished the temple. The Persian king Cyrus had given a decree and in essence given Judah a blank check to complete the temple. And they came back and under Sheshbazar they laid the foundation of the temple, but they got distracted. They turned away from the clear command and the work of the Lord to focus on self. The secular pagan trinity of me, myself, and I raised its ugly head in their lives. Look at what Haggai says in verse 4. He says, or God says through Haggai, I should say, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? The temple still lay in ruins. Now, 
Another fascinating aspect of Haggai is unlike the other books of the Bible and especially the minor prophets, there's no rebuke about idolatry or adultery or even social injustice within the nation of Israel that was common within the other prophets. In this short, powerful book, there's one theme and one theme only, build the temple. Now, one other fascinating aspect of Haggai. We can compare him to, for example, Jeremiah. Jeremiah has been called the weeping prophet because Jeremiah prophesied for some 55 years without any recorded evidence of any significant repentance on the part of the people. Or we can think of Micah. Micah the prophet prophesied for 20 years before there was finally some element of repentance with the people. Haggai preached And 23 days later, the people repented. Look at verses 12 through 15. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. The people feared before the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Beloved, this is what God did in the ministry of Haggai. But then he moved from this word of rebuke in chapter 1 to the second word in chapter 2, verse 1, and he gives a word of encouragement, whereas he directly addressed the leaders of the nation with the word of rebuke in chapter 1, verse 1 forward. In chapter 2, verse 1, he also addresses all of the people with a word of encouragement. Chapter 2, verse 1 On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, and then he speaks to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and to the remnant of the people. And look at verse 4. This is where he really gets into this great encouragement. Uh, This is a spiritual, motivational speech, if you will. And in verse 4, he says, God says to the people, but now take courage. Literally, but now be strong. And if you have an ESV, you'll see the words be strong. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And all you people of the land, be strong, declares the Lord, and work. For I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, we can pause there for a second and ask, even as we might imagine, the people saying, well, why shouldn't I be afraid? Why, why should I be encouraged? Why should I be strong? Do you understand the opposition? Do you understand the enemies of God and the enemies of Israel are still here threatening us? And what we see here in that charge, in that motivational strong word from the Lord is, be strong because I am with you. Do not fear because my spirit dwells in your midst. My spirit is abiding in your midst. And then in verses 6 through 9, we see God giving four self-portraits of himself. 
He describes himself, he paints himself as a God of war, or as the God of war, the God of wealth, the God of glory, and the God of peace. And this is marked by four times you'll see the words, I will. God is describing what he will do on behalf of these beleaguered, beaten down group of people that he has commanded to work in the ministry of obedience to him. The first portrait and the one here that we're focusing on is where God paints himself as a God of war. And we see that with the title, the name of God here, the Lord of hosts. And five times, Yahweh Sitbaot is the Hebrew, five times. And even as I was reading the public reading of Scripture, I hope my lisp wasn't a distraction as we read the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, five times. And this title of God, it's a military title. It is basically describing God where he has a host of angels, a mighty encampment, a mighty army behind him. Not that God needs any support or any army backing him, but that's the imagery. And this title of God, the Lord of hosts, is most fascinating. It's used 97 times in the 12 minor prophets. And just a side word here, they're called the minor prophets not because they're minor in importance, They're called the minor prophets because they're short in length. But the Lord of hosts, this military title of God, again, is used 97 times. What's interesting is it's used six times in the first nine minor prophets, but then for the three post-exilic prophets, it's used 91 times. And five times in these four verses of Haggai 2, 6 through 9, we see that title brought out. And then one last thing here to observe, look in verse 6. What God does in verse 6 is not only does he paint a picture of himself as the God of war, but he also reminds the people that he is the sovereign creator God that spoke the universe and the earth into existence. In verse 6 he says, for thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also, and the dry land. And so when you look at that description there, that is Genesis language from when God created the earth and the heavens, the sea also, and the dry land. Beloved, please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 6. Our passage this morning are verses 10 and 11, and this is the beginning verses of this great, one more seminal, central doctrinal statement from the Apostle Paul in this magnificent letter. The sermon this morning, it will be a standalone sermon, but it also will be a little bit of an introduction to the rest of this wonderful passage that describes the spiritual warfare that we are all engaged in, and even the armor of the Lord, the armor of Christ that we'll look at in verses 14 through 17. Beloved, we are, you are, if Jesus Christ is your, well, actually everyone, even those who aren't in the church, even those who don't worship Jesus Christ, every human being is in a holy war. The question is, which army is one fighting for? We, as believers, live in a spiritual war zone. The battle for man's soul is going on right now. And beloved, this battle, this is not a skirmish. This is not a playground fight. This is a fight to the death. This is a fight for life and death. This is war. And beloved, in this holy war that you and I are engaged in, there's never 
a ceasefire. There's never a detente or a peace treaty. There's never any temporary truces, ever. We fight this holy war. Beloved, you fight this holy war until your last breath. You fight this holy war until the death dew lies cold on your brow. This holy war continues until you reach the eternal Sabbath rest of heaven, which is what God promises and what God describes in the pages of Scripture. Beloved, hear the word of God. Again, the passage this morning for us is verses 10 through 11, but I'm going to read verses 10 through 17 for the entire picture. This is the word of God. Ephesians 6, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Beloved, this is the word of God that has been read in your hearing. Please attend to it as such. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in commenting on this section of Scripture, said, This is a stirring call to battle. Do you hear the bugle? Do you hear the trumpet? We're being roused. We're being stimulated. We're being set upon our feet. And we're being told to be men. The whole tone is martial. It's manly. It's strong. End quote. Uh, Dr. Jones, the Dr. Jones, the doctor, preached 50 sermons on these eight verses. He preached 11 sermons just on verse 10. He said also about this subject, there's nothing more urgently important for all who claim the name of Christ than to grasp and to understand the teaching of this particular section of Scripture. There was a 17th century Puritan, William Gurnall. He wrote a 1,200-page book, a 1,200-page devotional commentary on verses 10 through 20 called The Christian in Complete Armor. This is still in print. Well, beloved, as we look at this opening two verses that launch us into this magnificent subject that, of the spiritual warfare that you and I are waging in, we will see that we have, it, it describes in verse 10, the empowerment that we need. And then in verse 11, it's the equipment we wear and the enemy we face. And what God is saying through Paul to you and me is he's saying, be strong, suit up, and stand firm. He wants us to know who we are, what we have, and whom we face. So, Firstly, in verse 10, the empowerment we need. Be strong, beloved, and know who you are. Know we need and what we don't have. Know what we need and know what we don't have. And the reality is that we are needier than we know and weaker than we think. 
That's why the same apostle Paul, who God speaking through him, commands us to be strong or literally be empowered, also said and wrote to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. You see, just as our salvation comes from outside of us, in the same way that we are saved by a righteousness that doesn't belong to us, Philippians 3, 9, it's an alien righteousness. It's a righteousness that's not of our own. It's the righteousness of Christ. In the same way that our salvation comes from outside of us, so also our strength comes from outside of us. Paul begins here in verse 10. He says, finally, finally, now, When the preacher says, finally, for those of you out in the congregation, that means he's going to go on about for some length of time. (laughs) And so also the apostle Paul. You see, what he's saying here when he says, finally, it's not even as we might think of in conclusion. This is not an afterthought. This is not some kind of simple postscript. This is not the apostle Paul remembering something. Oh, yeah, just, you know, one more thing. This is part of the central and essential doctrine and teaching that is the bedrock foundation of everything he's been writing up to this point. Uh, the same two words translated as finally are translated in Galatians six seventeen from now on. Uh, it's kind of an antiquated word, but you could think of it as henceforward. From this point in time, this is what you do as you continue forward. This is the further outworking of the great themes of this magnificent letter. And what he says is finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He doesn't say be strong by the Lord or from the Lord. Be strong in the Lord. Paul is describing the sphere from which our strength comes. He is describing the sphere and the domain for those of us in Christ. When we are walking in Christ the way we should be walking in Christ, that is when we are empowered by this all-surpassing, mighty, dynamite power of the Lord. And he says, be strong, as I just indicated. It's even a little better to understand that as be empowered. It is a command. It's a passive command. He says, be empowered. It's interesting, the word translated as be strong, when it's used in Scripture in the New Testament of men, it always appears in the passive sense. For example, Acts 9, verse 22, it says, Saul kept increasing in strength, which in our English sounds like he was doing something to increase his own strength, you know, lifting weights or doing whatever. No, it's strength that is coming from the Lord. Or Romans 4, 20, Paul describes Abraham looking back in retrospect, and he says, with respect to the promise of God, he, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith. Again, passively being empowered by the Lord. Or Paul in 2 Timothy in his last letter, while Paul is in his second Roman imprisonment awaiting execution, he writes to Timothy and says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So those are some examples of how this word is used elsewhere. Now, when the word describes God as the subject, it's always active. Philippians 4, 13, Paul says, and you know the verse, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or 1 Timothy 1, 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me. Or Paul's, some of his final words, 2 Timothy 4, 17, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. 
That's in the New Testament. But the same kind of theme of being strong in the Lord, being empowered by God, we see often in the Old Testament as well. One of my favorite Old Testament verses is Joshua 1, verse 7. Be strong and very courageous. As the nation of Israel was up on the plains of Moab getting ready to go in and to take the land that God had given them. Or even as we read from Haggai both in the public reading of scripture and at the beginning of this sermon. Three times in Haggai 2 verse 6. Be strong, be strong, be strong. So while the grammar is passive there is an active nuance of responsibility. So even as we are being powered by strength that comes only from God, only in God, only in Christ, this is not in any way, shape, or form let go and let God. It's divine sovereignty. That's where the emphasis is. But we have responsibility. And it might make you think of the beautiful hymn from Martin Luther, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. The second stanza says, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabbath his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Beloved, God must win the battle. God will win the battle. And in his eternal counsel, even in eternity past, before he spoke the universe into existence, God determined and decreed that he would win it through us, through you. Therefore, be strong. Put your battle armor on and get ready to rumble. And the Holy Spirit restrained me, some of you people may know, from saying get ready to rumble in a certain kind of way. But we'll get back on task here. Beloved, In this beautiful book of Ephesians, Paul gives three chapters of exhortation after his initial three chapters of exhortation. We know that right belief flows from, or leads to, I should say, right behavior. In the first three chapters, Paul told us what our riches are. Now he tells us in Christ, the spiritual riches in Christ, even as we sang earlier. And now in chapters 4 through 6, he tells us how to use them. We are reminded when we study, when we read through this wonderful letter, that we were orphans who have been made sons and daughters. We were the homeless who have been given homes. We were the poor who have now been made rich in Christ. We were the guilty who have been made guiltless. We were giftless who are now gifted for the ministry and the work of the Lord. We were the perpetrators whom God has pardoned. We were dead whom God has now made alive forevermore. And then Paul here finishes up finally by telling us that you are no longer in enemy's camp. You are in the army of the Lord, in the kingdom of God, and it's time to fight. So that is the empowerment we need. We begin verse 11 with the equipment we wear. What God is telling you and me here is suit up for the battle and know what you have. Now, he says, put on, that's the first two words we see here put on and we might go back with our minds to what we read back in chapter 4 verse 24 where Paul said put on put on the new self in the 
kind of essential foundational Christian life 101 is the dynamic of put off the old and put on the new. At our conversion, at our salvation, in a sense, the old man was put off. The the, uh, penalty for sin was taken care of. And we have the promise and we've been positioned in Christ forever, secure for the future glory and bliss and joy of an eternal heaven with Christ. And at the same time, there is an ongoing dynamic in the work of sanctification in our Christian walk that we continually put off the old vices, the old sins, and continually put on the new man and the virtues. That's back in chapter 4, verse 24. That's not a summons from God to become what you aren't. That's really, in an essence, a summons from God to become, or be, rather not become, be what you are. We were removed from one realm and put in another completely different realm with a different uniform and with a different armor, which is what we have here. Put on the full armor of God. Here, chapter 6, verse 11. The sovereign grace, the sovereign strength that is emphasized in Verse 10 now leads to the human effort and the human exertion that comes out here. And the grammar of the command, be strong in the Lord or be empowered, it has this idea of a continual need. It should be continually, habitually part of what we do. Continually being strong in the Lord, being empowered with the strength of his might. The grammar for the command here has more of an urgency. Put on right now the full armor of the Lord. So divine sovereignty and human responsibility, verse 10 emphasizes more the divine sovereignty, verse 11 more the human responsibility, but with a blend of both in both verses. And the Greek word full armor is panoplia. It comes from the word pon meaning all and uh, hoplon meaning arms. We have an English word panoply from it, which basically describes a complete or impressive collection. And what he's saying here is put on all of the elements of the armor. And it's fascinating because the Apostle Paul wrote this from prison, from his first Roman imprisonment. And when he wrote this, he was chained to a Roman soldier 24-7 as part of his imprisonment. So it's very likely he was either seeing the armor on the soldiers when he was writing this or even seeing the armor there by the wayside. The historian Polybius listed the various parts of a Roman legionary's panoplia the shield, the breastplate, the helmet, the sword, which are four of the elements we'll see Apostle Paul bringing out in verses 14 through 17. Polybius also talked about the greaves and two javelins. But the Apostle Paul was a man of the word. He knew the Bible, which for him, the Bible he had was what we call our Old Testament. And Paul knew the prophet Isaiah. Paul would have remembered, he would have known what the prophet Isaiah said about the coming Messiah, about the suffering servant, about what we now on this side of the cross and on this side of the incarnation of the virgin-born baby called Jesus Christ. Isaiah 59, verse 17, God describes the son who came that he put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Or the Apostle Paul, when he was also writing to the church in Rome, in Romans 13, verse 12, the Apostle Paul wrote, this night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Watch this. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
So a beautiful blending and mixture of the put off and the put on and even bringing in what Paul elaborates on with the different elements of the armor in Ephesians 6 as just the armor of light. And when we think of this, beloved, a maybe modern contemporary version, we don't really put on armor today, but you might think of a bulletproof vest. And the question is, do you want, if you're going to put on a bulletproof vest, do you want to put on a bulletproof vest that was built by a 28-year-old adolescent living in his mother's basement? Or would you want to put on a bulletproof vest that's prepared by the company that supplies Gilbert's finest? Beloved, the application here is we want God-made equipment. This is a spiritual war. And just in saying that, when we talk about this holy war, so when God was describing some of the war imagery and the warfare in the Old Testament, there was a physical war, and there were physical wars that the nation of Israel had to fight against her enemies. The ultimate battle always, even for them, for the nation of Israel, was a spiritual war. For us in the church, this is only a spiritual war. This is not like the religion, the man-made religion of Islam, when it talks about bringing the sword, the actual physical sword. This is a spiritual war that we fight. So it is the empowerment we need, the equipment we wear. As we go to the third part of our message this morning, I was thinking of a Tuesday morning when I was in Southern California at Grace Community Church, and I had my Ironman's ministry at 6 a.m. with the leaders from the outreach department and uh, from the, fellowship, and the adult fellowship group I was shepherding. We had our Ironman's meeting from 6 a.m. to 7.30, and I remember we came out of the meeting. We left the basement of the JK building. I walked into the office building, the main office building, to go to my office. I walked by my secretary, and I said, good morning, Lisa. And she looked up, and she said, we're at war. And I said, with who? <laughs> I mean, I, 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 I had no idea. I was, I was completely caught aback. Now, you might be surmising already that this was Tuesday morning, September 11th, the year 2001. Beloved, the point is, you must know, we must know our enemy. Who is the enemy? And that is what we see from the Apostle Paul at the end of verse 11, the enemy we face. And the point here at the end is stand firm and know whom you fight. We must be awake, we must be alert, and we must be aware of whom it is we are fighting, who the enemy is. Uh, Sun Tzu, in his book, The Art of War, said, If you know the enemy and know yourself, you need not fear the result of a hundred battles. Now, beloved, we understand when we look at the entirety of Scripture that there are three great enemies that a child of God, a son of God, a daughter of God faces. There is the world. The world is an enemy. The flesh is in some sense, the, in one sense at least, the greatest enemy. And the devil, the spiritual forces. There's the enemy within and the enemy without. I, I face a world that allures me, an inner disposition that drives me, and a devil that opposes me. And when we think of the enemies, you can think of recon by fire. Recon by fire is a military tactic where you basically don't know where the enemy is, so you fire off in the general direction of the enemy, and then when you start seeing the flashes of the returning fire, you know where to call in the airstrike. And see, what the Apostle Paul is doing here is the enemy he's focusing on here is not the world, it's not the flesh, 
It's the devil who opposes me, the devil who opposes you. And beloved, here we, you are, we are soldiers strengthened in the Lord to stand firm against the assaults, against the attacks of the evil one. Paul finishes verse 11, so that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now, in this second section of Ephesians, the chapters 4 through 6, in particular in chapter 4 verse 1 through chapter 5 verse 17, you'll see five times there God commands you and I to walk. Walk in the Lord. Walk in love. Walk in wisdom. Walk in light. Walk in purity. But now what he does, three times here in chapter 6, verse 11 through 14, he says, stand firm, stand firm, stand firm. So the military imagery here, the warfare here, that he's not describing a march. He's not talking about a straight-ahead assault. Uh, there is, for example, in 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, that's another place where the Apostle Paul talks about spiritual warfare, and there's actually an offensive imagery used there. I'll probably go to that sometime in the next few weeks as we go through this. But that's not what he's talking about here. He says, stand firm. Stand firm. The word describes something that lasts, something that is stable, something that's not subject to decay or change. Simply put, the one who stands firm, the man or woman who stands firm is not pushed around, not pushed back, but firmly holds his or her position. So we can think of the nice song, Onward Christian Soldiers, which may sing well, and it might fit in with 2 Corinthians 10, but that's not the point here. He's saying, stand your ground, defend the fort. Now, having said this, we do understand that every sin is an inside job, but there are outside influences, agencies, forces of darkness seeking to destabilize, agents of chaos. It was interesting. I saw in social media sometime this week, and I can't remember if it was describing uh, the battle at faithful Canadian pastors that are getting imprisoned and getting arrested because they, are, they will not bow the, note to Caesar, bow the knee to Caesar and disobey God's command to worship and to preach the word of God or what the dynamic was. But they actually cited the spiritual forces of darkness that are at work even in what we're seeing worked out here. Agents of chaos. There was a quote that is very often erroneously attributed, as, as I understand it, to Sun Tzu, but, who wrote The Art of War. But it's a good quote, so I'll bring it out here. The quote says, an evil enemy will burn his own nation to the ground to rule over the ashes, end quote. And that's not a bad picture of what the enemy, the adversary, the slanderer, Satan, the devil does. Beloved, you face an enemy that is hell-bent on your destruction. He's a terribly powerful enemy, full of wiles, subtlety, and guile. He is not omnipotent. But he is powerful. And Paul says, God says, stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Now the word schemes here only appears two times in scriptures. It appears in scripture, it appears here, and it appears in chapter 4, verse 14. And the point of this word is that Satan and his minions don't always attack through obvious head-on assaults. He implies cunning strategies designed to catch believers, to catch you and me unaware. 
Now, where does he do this? And we don't need to be concerned about Satan. Rather, we can look to the word of God. God defines the primary combat zones for us. Or I should say, he has already defined the primary combat zones for us right before this passage. Chapter 5, verse 21 through chapter 6, verse 9. Beloved, our battles are fought in the ordinary relationships and duties of life. The home, the office, the factory, the university the intimate relationships of family and work. Our conversations with those in charge of us and our conversations with those who work under us. Beloved, these are the gladiator arenas where Christian warfare is waged and the issues of life are settled. Think of King David. King David killed Goliath with a sling as a teenager. He killed his tens of thousands in the God-ordained warfare for the nation of Israel. He knew victory in battles. He was delivered from Saul and the Philistines, but he lost his greatest battle in his home. He took a number of wives. He stole Bathsheba and had her righteous husband Uriah murdered. David, King David, who conquered his tens of thousands on the field of battle, was overcome by lust. And it led to civil war and the loss of many lives in the nations. All because David's home around his table, in his bed, he was restless and discontent and not satisfied with the one wife God gave him. He lost the spiritual battle in the gladiator arena of his home, of his family, of his marriage. Beloved, we can't escape this holy war. And this holy war is not a cold war, it's a hot war. I remember... Early in my career, I was working in a secure lab during the Cold War. And the lab I was working in was equipped with a sledgehammer to destroy the computers and an iron trash can with rags and oil to burn the papers in case the Russians landed on the airfield next to the lab. But, beloved, again, this holy war, that spiritual holy war that Paul is describing here is not a cold war. It's not fought with technology. It's not fought with a distance. This is hand-to-hand combat. In fact, in verse 12, Paul shifts the imagery from being soldier to wrestling. He says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces of darkness. This holy war, beloved, is fought in our dens, our living rooms, our bedrooms, in our schoolrooms, in our church, in our neighborhoods, in our businesses. And the sad reality is there are casualties every day. And when we finish up our initial thinking about the enemy, what was the enemy like in the beginning? Immediately after Satan was cast out of heaven, he went and he attacked what? He attacked marriage. He went to the woman instead of the man. He went to Eve instead of Adam. He attacked the marriage and he he caused chaos in the kids. And he took the beautiful worship of work and through God's righteous judgment brought thorns and thistles to it. How about today? Today, beloved, the enemy creeps up and unsuspectingly whispers In the ear of the wife, is your husband really loving you the way he should? He creeps up and unsuspectingly whispers in the ear of the husband, is your wife really submitting to you the way she should? He creeps up to the and whispers to the child, do you really need your parents? Maybe you need a village. 
Do you really need to listen to him? Maybe you know more than they do. Beloved, such is the enemy we face. Our responsibility, your responsibility is join the battle. Join the army. Join arms with the band of brothers, the band of sisters in this holy war. And think of what Christ said in his Lord's Prayer. He said, pray in this way. And the beautiful words of it. And the point in the Lord's Prayer was the principles, not the words. You can repeat the words of the prayer. They're good words. But it's not something we just repeat by rote. But he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It could equally be translated as lead, or, uh, deliver us from the evil one. And it's interesting because when Christ taught that of how to pray, who among others were in the audience? The Apostle Peter. And it was the same Apostle Peter that heard Christ say, pray in the fashion of delivering us from evil or from the evil one, who wrote in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. But resist him firm in your faith. Beloved, our families are under attack. Our faith is under siege. This is a cosmic struggle that takes place in the heavenlies. But it manifests itself in moments of time and decisions of life. Jesus doesn't promise this walk. He doesn't promise this war will be quick and easy. He certainly doesn't promise health and wealth to those who name it and claim it. He promises sweat, blood, toil, and tears. He promises hardship and suffering as we stand and fight the enemy. And he promises absolute, certain, ultimate victory and presence and worship and unbounding joy with no pain, sorrow, or tears forever and ever in his presence. Therefore, don't be overcome by cowardice or laziness. Realize that the progress of a lifetime can come to a crashing halt in an instant. It is true that the counsel of God from eternity past will never fail. And it's also true that God decided in his plan victory will be given to those who overcome. Overcomers are conquerors. The overcomers that is described by the Apostle John in the first epistle of John or by John in the book of Revelation chapter 20. Overcomers are conquerors and in order to conquer, you and I must fight. Are you ready for the battle? Are you on the alert? Are we on the alert? Are we on our feet? Beloved, let us rise up. Let us shake off the whims and the fancies and the concerns of this world. Let us stand on our feet. Be a mighty man of God. Be a mighty woman of God. You're a member of the mighty army of God fighting his battle and destined to enjoy the glorious fruits of victory through the countless ages of all eternity. Do you hear the trumpet? Do you hear the bugle? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God and stand firm, beloved, in the Lord. Please join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for the victory that has already been won. We praise you and thank you, Lord, that the enemy has been defeated 
And at the same time, Lord, we praise you for your perfect plan and that we know the enemy is not yet destroyed and that we are part of the forces that are behind you as our victorious marching general, as we would stand and defend the fortress of the truth, the word of God, the purity of our families and our church, and protect our beloved wives and husbands and our children. Lord, help us to gather up the full armor of the Lord for your glory for our victory in the here and now in the moments of time and the decisions of life and be blessed and glorified by all that we do and it is for your glory and for your honor Lord Jesus that we come to you give us clarity of thought and humility of heart it's in your name that we pray that we live that we fight amen